So I will now read 1 Kings 17, and then we will pray and ask God for his help. So hear the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering sticks there. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, "'What have you against me, O man of God?' You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. And cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let us pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father,
we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask you to give us today your word. Would it be for us sustenance, food and drink for the soul? Illumine your word for us by your spirit so that we might understand it and love it and believe it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in the 19th century, the famous German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche termed the phrase, God is dead. His point was that as enlightened people, we have now put aside childish and medieval myths about God and miracles. He supposed that we are too intelligent to believe such tales. As he put it, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Now, to combat Nietzsche, Christians have put forward some of their best philosophers, philosophers of such great sophistication as the newsboys, who have said, God's not dead, he's surely alive. Well, in our text today, we see both a dead God and the God who lives. You will hear of the silly myths of the gods and the triumph of the one true God who will not share his glory with another. Today, we will behold the God who lives. We will see that this God is Lord over all things. In verse 1, he is the Lord over Israel. In verses 2 through 7, he is the Lord of the wilderness. In 8 through 16, he is even the Lord of enemy territory. And in 17 through 24, he is the Lord of life and death. But before we behold this God, first I must quickly introduce you to his prophet. So let's look again at verse 1 where we see Elijah's introduction. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now Elijah's introduction can feel abrupt and awkward. The only thing that we are told about him is that he is a Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Now, unfortunately, we do not know anything about Tishbe, besides what this text tells us, that it's in the region of Gilead in Israel. Now, we get no physical description of Elijah, and we do not hear his backstory. Now, this can seem quite strange to us, but I think that there is a good reason for the lack of detail about Elijah. And the reason is this. Even though Elijah is featured prominently in these few chapters, these stories are not really about him. But our text is about God. We see this simply by how Elijah describes himself. He is the one who stands before God and who speaks for him. Now when he says, except by my word, the rain will not come, He is talking about the word of the Lord that is in his mouth as the prophet of the Lord. 
So we see then that this narrative is about God. It tells us about the Lord's supremacy over all things, over rain and drought, food and famine, life and death. Elijah is just the messenger. Nevertheless, his message of judgment is worth heeding. So let's consider for a moment the basis of this judgment. Now, Elijah is prophesying in the time of the divided kingdom. He's speaking to the northern kingdom, Israel. Now, we did not read this, but at the end of 1 Kings 16, we learned that King Ahab is the king at this time. And King Ahab built an altar to Baal, that is one of the Canaanite gods, and he worshipped it. The author of Kings says that King Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. So here we see a clear warrant for judgment. Israel has been unfaithful to God's covenant. Well, we see why Israel is being judged, but I ask you, where does God tell Elijah to speak judgment against Israel? Well, we see in verses 2 and 8 that it tells us that the word of the Lord came to Elijah and told him to do specific things, like to go here or go there. In a few weeks in chapter 19, we'll see that the Lord passed by Elijah in a strong wind, an earthquake, and a fire. But the Lord's word was not in any of them. Rather, God spoke in a low whisper. But here in verse 1, there is no indication that God spoke anything new to Elijah. Well then, was Elijah just making this judgment up? Was he speaking out of place? No. The word of the Lord did indeed come to Elijah, and it came to him in the same way it comes to us, through God's written word. Elijah read God's word, perhaps a text like Deuteronomy eleven sixteen through 17, which says, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain." And the land will yield no fruit, and he will perish, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You see, Elijah read God's word, and he believed it. You know, there are whole movements of Christianity that are trying to get back to the days of the prophets, where God spoke in thunder and in whispers. But we must not miss this important point, namely that the word of God in written form is no less powerful than God's mighty roar on Mount Sinai. God's written word was powerful enough for Elijah to pronounce God's judgment. And as we will see, if you will just believe it, it is powerful enough to save you from God's judgment. Well, we've seen so far that this story is not primarily about Elijah. 
but the God whom he proclaims. Let's look together at the identity of this God. Elijah swears, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there will be a drought. Now we see several other times in scripture where a prophet would swear by the life of God. This was meant to convey the surety of the prophet's words. As surely as the Lord lives, so will this happen. But given Israel's context of Baal worship, Elijah's words take on another meaning. You see, according to Canaanite mythology, Baal was the thunder god who was in charge of giving rain to the land. Now, according to these legends, during times of drought, Mot, the god of death, killed Baal, leaving there to be no one to send rain. Now, eventually, with the help of yet another god, Baal would rise from the dead, bringing rain to the land again. This cycle of Baal's life and death is how they explained the rainy seasons and times of drought. If there's rain, Baal's alive. If there's drought, Baal is dead. And it's into this context of Baal worshiping Israelites that Elijah proclaims, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain. Now notice that it is the Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, that is the God of Israel. The one true God alone deserves Israel's worship, not Baal. He has an exclusive claim upon them. But I want you to see also that it is the Lord who is alive. And how does he show that he is alive? By killing Baal, by sending a drought. Here God shows that he is the sovereign God over Israel. He alone gives them rain and he will withhold it according to his own will. Well, the Lord's claim to be the sovereign God of Israel is not surprising to many of us. Often in the Old Testament, God claims and demonstrates that he is the God of Israel. But in verses 2 through 7, we see that God is not a territorial deity. He is the Lord of the wilderness as well. So let's look together at verses 2 through 7. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, God commanded Elijah to depart and to hide himself for two reasons. First, Elijah's words of judgment certainly angered King Ahab and put Elijah's life at risk. God's command to flee was also a promise that he would protect and provide for Elijah. 
But the second reason that God commanded Elijah to depart and to hide himself was as a judgment against Israel. You see, Elijah was God's prophet. If you could find Elijah, you could hear the word of the Lord. For Elijah to depart from uh, King Ahab's palace and to hide himself from God's people was for the word of the Lord to leave Israel. You see, Israel was about to enter into a famine, but even worse, they would have a famine of God's word. Now, Elijah was commanded to go to the brook Kareth. If you don't know, a brook is a dry riverbed that contains water only during times of overflooding. Well, we don't know much about the brook, where the brook of Kareth was, but the description east of the Jordan should set off our Old Testament antennas. What was the first miracle that God did for the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua? God miraculously helped them cross over the Jordan River so that they could enter into the promised land. Well, now God told Elijah to go the opposite way that Joshua went. Elijah was going out of Israel proper into the wilderness. Well, we have seen so far that the Lord is God over Israel. But is he God over the wilderness as well? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. God demonstrated his power over the ravens who obediently served Elijah bread and meat in the morning and evening. Here we are reminded of the manna that God provided the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. Furthermore, the brook was miraculously able to sustain Elijah for some time. Again, we are reminded that at times God can even cause water to come out of rocks. Church, behold the power of your God. At his word, the rains come and go. For he turns deserts into pools of water, a parched land into springs. At his behest, beasts of the field and birds of the air find their food, as well as the young ravens who cry. At his command, the ravens set a table in the desert, bringing food in a time of famine. He gives drink in a time of drought. But as we see in verse 7, even this God-given pool of water ran out. For even after drinking from the miraculous brook of Kareth, Elijah still thirsts more. But if you drink from the water that Christ gives you, you will never thirst again. See, this is the power of our God. He has tamed the wild wilderness, and he can satisfy even the thirstiest of men. But God's sovereign control, even over the wilderness, does not come as a surprise to many of us. After all, we've all heard the stories of God's provision for Moses and the Israelites. But I ask you, what about a pagan nation? What about enemy territory? 
What about a land that is wholly dedicated to Baal and the Canaanite gods? Is God the Lord over enemy territory too? Well, in verses 8 through 16, we see that God is the Lord even over his enemies. Let's read together verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. The main thing that you need to know about Zarephath is that it was not part of the kingdom of Israel. It was a Phoenician town north of Israel in between Tyre and Sidon. Now, all of that to say, this was the land of God's enemies, worshipers of Baal, who had obscene religious practices like temple prostitution and child sacrifice. Furthermore, this was near the region where Jezebel grew up in. Jezebel was the wicked wife of King Ahab who instituted the worship of Baal on a national scale in Israel and led a fierce campaign to wipe out the prophets of Yahweh. This is the land that God was sending Elijah into. And just as God commanded the ravens to provide for Elijah in the wilderness— Now, God would command a widow in Zarephath to feed him. But this would prove to be a difficult task for the Phoenician woman, because Baal, her provider, was dead. But as we will see, even though she sought after Baal to provide, he was powerless to provide for her. But the Lord of heaven and earth, whom she did not seek, sought after her. What her idol was powerless to do for her, the Lord would do for her. He would display his supremacy over Baal by going into Baal's own territory and doing what only the Lord could do. But let us not get ahead of ourselves. First, let us look at how Baal failed this widow in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have neither baked, nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Well, just as the Lord had promised, Elijah found the widow in Zarephath. And we quickly learn that there is no more food or water here than there was in Israel. The true God of the heavens was teaching this foreign nation a lesson in theology, namely that it is the Lord who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, not their petty God. Well, when Elijah found the woman, 
He called to her for provisions just as the Lord had commanded. He wasn't asking for much, only a little water and a morsel of bread. But notice her curious response in verse 12. As the Lord your God lives. Not my God, your God. Now this widow, she couldn't swear upon the life of her God. Why? Well, because there was a drought, which meant according to her own beliefs, her God was dead. You don't swear by a dead God. Now, I'll be honest. Many Christians have a view of God that is more akin to Baal than the God of heaven and earth. You know what I mean. Their God gives them rain, but never sends a drought. He blesses, but never curses, gives, but never takes away. The Lord, however, gives rain and he withholds it. He blesses the righteous and judges the wicked. He exalts the humble and humbles the proud. He leads us in times of plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And where is he when the thorn in our flesh is not removed? He's giving us grace that is sufficient and magnifying his power in our weakness. That widow spoke better than she knew, for our God is alive in times of drought. But what she did not know is that not only is our God alive and powerful, But he also cares for the widow and orphan, the lowly and destitute, the poor and needy. Our God is sovereign and he is good. But she did not know the goodness of this God. She did not depend upon the provisions of this Lord. And so she was preparing her last meal for her son and herself before they died. Now, understandably, she was not in the best position to have a dinner party or to host a guest. I know my wife can relate with that feeling. But I want you to hear the Lord's promise of provision to this woman as he provides for her in a way that Baal never could. Let's look together at verses 13 through 16. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now I want you to hear this. These are the words of the Lord through the mouth of his holy prophet to an idol-worshipping pagan. Do not fear. Brothers and sisters, be amazed by this. 
God has come by his prophet to a Gentile woman who knows nothing of the law. She has never heard the Ten Commandments. She knows nothing of God's promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. She's never heard of the promise of God's promise to Adam that through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed. She's never heard of the Messiah to come, nor is she trusting in his salvation. And yet, though she was God's enemy, he says, do not fear. Brothers and sisters, this is your testimony. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You were far from him living under the dominion of the ruler of this world. You worshiped your idols of power, approval, comfort, and control. Whether it was sex or success, certainty or luxury, you put your trust in anything but the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Your idolatry deserved God's judgment the famine of his word, the removal of his gracious presence, the wrath of God. But instead of hiding himself from you, he came to you. And he did not come riding on the clouds in judgment, but he came in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, saying to you, do not fear. Well, God's words of comfort to the widow and to us is followed by a call to believe in the Lord. In the case of the widow, she had to bring Elijah a little cake before she fed herself or her son, trusting that what she lacks in flour and oil, the God who lives will supply. And she believed and she lived. And to us, God is calling us to turn from our idols, the things that we are trusting in, and to believe that whatever righteousness that we lack in ourselves, God will supply in Christ. Do not trust in your resources, your rations of bread and oil to escape the judgment of God. Believe in the word of God for the very word of God that brought judgment upon Israel, brought life and salvation to this believing Gentile woman. May you believe the word of Christ and likewise live. But in verses 17 through 24, we see that, it, that this life that was preserved by God was threatened by God's final foe, death itself. We have seen that God is Lord over Israel. He is Lord over the wilderness and even over enemy territory. But is God Lord over life and death? Let's look together at verses 17 and 18. 
After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? Well, as we read the widow's accusations, we must not forget what we already know about her. This widow is learning what it means to pray to God and to ask him to give us this day our daily bread. And every day she is experiencing the daily provisions of the Lord as the, the, the oil and the flour is multiplied. The Lord's mercy is new for her every morning. But God's plentiful provision turns into his painful providence when her son died. For as A.W. Pink said, in her son, all her affections were centered. And with his death, all her hopes were destroyed. Where are your affections centered today? Now notice also how she interprets the death of her son. She blames Elijah. For he has brought God's unwanted attention upon her. She thought because Elijah was living with her, the Lord noticed her sin and therefore was punishing her by killing her son. But as one commentator rightly noted, the woman's real problem is not that God had suddenly noticed her sin, but that she herself had finally noticed it. You see, the widow's words reveal that she had a guilty conscience before God. Now, perhaps Elijah had told her of his confrontation with Ahab and his pronouncement of judgment. Perhaps he had told her about the law of God. I don't know how it happened, but somehow she had understood that God is holy and she is not. But rather than throwing herself upon the mercy of God, the very mercy that sought her out in the first place, She blamed Elijah and, in effect, was blaming God. Well, in verses 19 through 21, we see Elijah's response. Verse 19, and he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. How does Elijah respond to this widow's accusations against the goodness of God? He takes her son and goes up to his private quarters and prays. And notice that his prayer in verse 20 is basically a repetition of the widow's cry. He said, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her? Elijah knew what it was like to bear another's burdens, 
to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep. He shared her anguish and prayed from her point of view. The next time when someone comes up to you in a moment of crisis and out of hurt questions the goodness of our God, perhaps in that moment you do not need to give an answer to their cry. But like Elijah, you need to go to God and cry with them. Well, in verse 21, tells us that Elijah stretched himself upon the child. This was a symbolic gesture as if to say, let this lifeless body be as my living body. And he prayed three more times. Now these prayers were for God to bring this child back to life. We know that Yahweh is the God of Israel. He is the God of the wilderness and even God of pagan territory. But is he the Lord over death as well? Well, let's look at the final part of our text, verses 22 through 24. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. One verse 22 is perhaps the most staggering statement in this entire chapter so far. Many times thus far, Elijah had listened to the voice of the Lord. But here, the Lord listens to the voice of Elijah. You see, our God is alive. He hears. He acts. He gives life to the dead. And Elijah's statement in verse 23 is perhaps the greatest proof that the Lord is the living God. See, your son lives. Only a living God can give life to the dead. And hear the response of the woman in verse 24. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You know, we are so much like this widow, trusting in God for bread one moment, doubting him the next. But now God has shown himself to be Lord over that which even Baal could not conquer on his own, death. After what she has now seen and the grace of God that has now been shown to her, she may still have times of doubt, but she knows that there is nowhere else to turn for only this lord's word is truth well you might be thinking well well, these are great stories of god's power and love but what do they have to do about me where am i in this story well brothers and sisters by nature you are unbelieving israel You deserve the righteous judgment of God for your idolatry. You deserve for God to hide his word from you, to remove his presence from you. 
By nature, you are the widow of Zarephath, an enemy of God, under the domain of the God of this age, lacking the resources to escape God's holy judgment. Like the widow, your sins against God warrant death. You are also like the widow's son, dead in your transgressions and unable to live to God. But behold, the God of our salvation. Will our God enter the wilderness for us? He has done so in Jesus Christ. Will he cross the territory of the prince of this world for us? He has done so. In Jesus Christ. Will he cross the boundary between the living and the dead for us? He has done so in Jesus Christ. You see, your transgressions have been paid for not by the death of your son, but by the death of God's son. But behold, Jesus is no longer in the grave, for behold, God's son lives. Therefore, do not fear. Do not fear the righteous judgment of God, but turn from your idolatry and center your affections on God's Son, who gives you a hope that can never be destroyed. Turn from your idolatry and believe the word of God that Christ has truly crossed every boundary for you. Believe today that the God who gives rain and withholds it, who commands the ravens and multiplies oil and flour, the God who lives and raises the dead, has indeed risen you, raised you from the dead, and has given you new life in Christ. Believe today the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been reminded today that nothing is out of your control, for you are Lord over all things. Give us faith to believe that. Comfort us with the words of your gospel that Christ has crossed every boundary for us. Help us to turn from our idols and to look to Christ alone for our salvation. In Jesus' name.